Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Jake's Takes podcast here at Oklahoma State University. I'm your host Jake Ferraro and today we got a lot to cover. We will begin recapping the OSU game against Kansas State. We will preview OSU's game against Baylor on Saturday. We will talk a little about UFC 266 that happened over the weekend. I will also give my annual NFL picks for week four. I will also talk about the Seattle Kraken coming into the NHL and voted on on my Instagram story. I will give my opinion the top 10 worst teams in the history of the National Football League. I mentioned it to start, so let's get right to it. Recapping Oklahoma State's win on Saturday at Boone Piggin Stadium against the Kansas State Wildcats. What a fun time to be there to see the Cowboys go 4-0, to hear the Boone rocking, to see the orange and black faithful come alive, and it was good to see the people wearing purple go home upset. The Cowboys started off kicking off, and Kansas State had a pretty long drive. I think it went about five, six minutes, and they kicked the field goal, and they go up 3-0, and I remember thinking to myself, man, I don't know if this offense is going to be able to compete in this game so far the defense if the defense is tired and the offense has short drives the defense is just going to get gassed and what do you know a big play right off the bat screen pass to Jalen Warren and then they would go on and score on that drive Spencer Sanders had a rushing touchdown and then just like that the Kansas State Wildcats had a kickoff return for a touchdown to go up 10-7 I'm like great here we go again This just can't be any easier for us. It's always got to be difficult for us. But, man, was the offense clicking in the first half. The first four possessions on offense resulted in points. And that was absolutely big for us. Offense was clicking. Spencer Sanders, I thought, played phenomenal. 22 of 34 for 344 yards and two passing passing touchdowns. I mentioned that he had a rushing touchdown on the ground. Jalen Warren. 123 yards on the ground, even had four catches, 81 yards out of the backfield. So that's 204 yards combined. And Devontavion Martin, nine catches, 100 yards even, and a touchdown. But if you ask me, the face of Oklahoma State's football roster has to be Malcolm Rodriguez. Remember the name of Malcolm Rodriguez. Just please do. He... Won his second Big 12 Defensive Player of the Week honor, or he was the co, whatever that means. I obviously know what it means, but I'm saying that sarcastically. 43 tackles this season, most in the Big 10, and he had a defensive touchdown after the quarterback dropped the snap. Well, in fairness to the quarterback, it was a low snap. I don't know how much you want to put to blame on that on Jaron Lewis, the quarterback for KSU, but we'll take it. There is no doubt about it. He is absolutely flying all over the field. He's bringing leadership, and it's absolutely big for Oklahoma State to get a big defensive player like that. And what I found shocking, most of anything, is they were able, the Oklahoma State defense was able to hold Deuce Vaughn to 22 yards on the ground after having three straight games of having at least 120 yards. They held him to 22 yards on 13 carries. Will Howard, the quarterback that came in, for Kansas State later on because Lewis was out of the game had more rushing yards on three attempts than 
Vaughn did. He had 28 yards. Vaughn had 22, like I said earlier. So it was just a big day. Happy to win. We knocked Kansas State out of the top 25. They came into the game ranked number 25. So it was definitely good to have a big win. And man, I did not expect the offense to go off the way it did. And it was absolutely phenomenal to watch. It literally bang, bang, bang. There was no mishaps, it felt, and it was just good. I know they got shut out in the second half, but I think at that point, Mike Gundy just wanted to run the clock out as much as he can. So when whenever you can score 31 points in the first half, you usually should be set for the win. So that is that. Kansas State will is not in the top 25 anymore. Oklahoma State now ranked number 19. I honestly will say I did not think they would be in the top 20. I, I definitely thought they could be ranked, but I thought it'd be around 22, 23, maybe the highest, maybe 21. But 4-0 will get you into the top 20. And speaking of 4-0, Oklahoma State's next game, they welcome in the Baylor Bears. They are ranked number 21. Big game for OSU, big game for Baylor. Definitely want to get higher in the top 25 rankings. OSU, when I looked earlier in the morning around 12, 1 a.m., OSU was minus three and a half on FanDuel with the over-under set at 49 and a half. Baylor 4-0, they defeated Texas State, Texas Southern, Kansas, and they upset Iowa State, who came into the game ranked number 14. So... Baylor definitely is a good competition. Baylor also did drop 66 points on Texas Southern, which, in fairness, is not a football school. Baylor's led by quarterback Gary Batanen, 4-0 as a starter, only has 828 yards passing on the season with seven touchdowns, but the big number for him, zero. That is how many interceptions he has thrown on the season for the Bears' offense. Running game, very steady at Baylor, led by Abram Smith and Tristan Ebner. Abram Smith, 413 yards rushing, five touchdowns. He had three straight games of 115 yards rushing, but last week he cooled off. He only had 47 against Iowa State and Tristan Ebner. No touchdowns, but 348 yards, and he had two games of 120 yards or more to start the year but he's cooled off the past two weeks so I definitely think the Bears will try and run the football against the Cowboy defense but the Cowboy defense how weird is this Boise State in week three they hold the Boise State Russian attack to 62 yards on offense against Kansas State on Saturday 62 yards again how ironic is that you hold your opponent to the same amount of rushing yards the past two weeks So, definitely going to be a fun game to watch. 6 p.m. Central Time at the Boone. I will be there. The place will be rocking for number 19 against number 21. This is a big game for both teams. And you know what? With how the Big 12 was this weekend, I have to say the Big 12 conference is wide open to be won. Oklahoma barely squeezed out a win against West Virginia. Texas put up 70 against Texas Tech. And obviously, Oklahoma State won to beat Kansas to knock them out of the top 25. And Baylor pulled off the upset against Iowa State. So the Big 12 Conference, no doubt, 
is wide open. I will admit, I have to feel bad for Spencer Ryler getting booed and the fans were chanting, we want Caleb. I don't think all of it is his fault. The interception that he, one of the interceptions that he threw, I think he only threw one. I'm not 100% sure. I didn't pay too much attention to the OU game on Saturday against the Mountaineers. But after an interception, they were chanting, we want Caleb. And I'm like, come on, you can't do this to a kid that young, that early. You know, there's still time left. Oklahoma is still a powerhouse to be reckoned with. So I think that's a little too far by the Sooner fans that were there and the students that were there. But I'm not I'm not an OU fan. I don't pay attention much to OU, although I probably should. And I think eventually I will. So that's that. Over the weekend, UFC 266. What a main event between Volkanovski and Ortega. I predicted on the main card that Diaz and Ortega would win. Those were the only two on the main card that I ended up getting wrong about. I was right about Andrade, Bladis, and Shevchenko. But Nick Diaz got caught with a right or just a punch in general. He fell to his knee. He looked like he couldn't continue. I guess that's what can happen to a fighter that hasn't fought in nearly seven whole years. And Brian Ortega and Volkanovski were definitely duking it out. It was such a great main event. There was times I thought Ortega was going to win, but Volkanovski was able to get out of the position being down on the in the octagon and... You know, Ortega took some shots. There was times in the fight, I'm like, how is he even back up on his feet? Is this possible? But you know what, man? Much respect to Ortega and Volkanovski. They definitely showed respect at the end. And it was definitely a good fight to watch. It absolutely was. I don't know what will be happening moving forward for both Volkanovski and Ortega, but I guess only time will tell, as they say. So... Great fight for the main event. I also definitely think Shevchenko has earned enough credit to maybe be a main event draw on a pay-per-view. I definitely believe that if Dana White put her against the right fighter, that she definitely could have a main event fight. I don't know who that woman fighter would be for a main event card, but I definitely think Shevchenko has earned enough respect and credit to be on a main event of a pay-per-view. So, moving on, I'm going to give my traditional week four picks for the NFL, or just traditional NFL picks, which includes my upset, lock, cover, and over-under pick. Last week, I believe I was 11-5, and five, or 10-6. and six. I had a much better week than I did in week two when I was under 500. So, let's get right to it. We start Thursday night football, the Jacksonville Jaguars. 0-3 on the road to Cincinnati to play Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Who would have thought that the Bengals would be 2-1 when the season began? Definitely not me. I think Joe Burrow is starting to get into a groove. The Bengals defense played lights out against the Pittsburgh Steelers in Pittsburgh at Heinz Field. I got to roll with the Bengals in this one. Absolutely I have to roll with the Bengals. The Urban Meyer era in Jacksonville is going as exactly like I predicted, it is failing, and I def honestly think he's going to be out of Jacksonville by the end of the year, if not sooner. I, I kept saying it to everyone. The man had no NFL experience coaching. He was a college coach through and through at Florida, at Ohio State, 
and I do believe that Jacksonville hired him for PR, you know. I'm sure there's still Gator fans that are Jaguar fans, and it was just really for PR. Moving on, we're going to go to the 12 o'clock games now. The first one, we got the Washington football team looking to bounce back after a loss at Buffalo. They take on the Atlanta Falcons in Atlanta. The Falcons are coming off an impressive road win against the New York football Giants. The Falcons were able to spoil the Giants crowd as they were retiring Eli Manning's jersey, number 10 at halftime. And I got to roll with the Falcons at home. I think, I know Washington has a good defense, but you know what? If the Falcon defense can hold Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, Kenny Galladay to 14 points, I definitely think they can shut down Taylor Heineke and Terry McLaurin and even Antonio Gibson. So I will take the Falcons at home in week four. Next game. This will be my upset pick. The Detroit Lions on the road against the Chicago Bears. I am taking the Lions as my upset pick. They should have won that game against the Ravens. The referees missed a delay of game penalty right before Tucker's 66-yard field goal. Why does it always seem the referees are against Detroit all the time? It always feels like that, whether if it's the playoff game in 2014 against the Cowboys in the wild card to the Seahawks batting the ball intentionally for a touchback. It it always seems the referees are against Detroit for whatever reason. I don't know, but the Bears offense again looks so putrid and please Chicago for the organization, for the Bears fans, for Justin Fields, just if you lose this game embarrassingly to Detroit, just fire Matt Nagy please the guy has no idea what he's doing it's an absolute disgrace for once for bears fans lives they've had hope around a quarterback and god knows how long you know and already you had to throw him in the fire against a good defense like cleveland and and miles garrett sacked the bears four and a half times i mean enough is enough they haven't been this excited in a quarterback and we don't know how long i still say Best quarterback in Chicago history is Jay Cutler. If you want to look at the numbers, Chicago has never had a steady quarterback. And Cutler, as bad as he may have been or mediocre as he was, he is the best quarterback in Chicago Bear history. Moving on. This will be my cover of the week. The Tennessee Titans on the road to East Rutherford, New Jersey to play the New York Jets at MetLife Stadium. The Titans minus seven and a half. Take it. I love the Titans at seven and a half. They definitely had a good home win against the Colts. They were able to hold the Colts offense pretty good. And the Jets offense, man, it looks like Adam Gase is coaching the offense again for New York. I mean, the offense is just abysmal. I mean, who who scares you on the Jets offense? Nothing. There is nothing that scares you about the Jets. So I like the Titans at seven and a half. I really do. I thought the Titans defense played pretty good against the Colts. And I definitely think that can go over into the Jets game and Jets offense. Again, it looks like there's nothing going there. I mean, barely any offense for the points in New England and they get shut out in Denver. Uh, Titans seven and a half. I got to love it. Next up, a good game. The Vikings should be better than one and two. 
The Minnesota Vikings will host the Cleveland Browns at U.S. Bank Stadium. I actually am going to take the Browns. I think that the Browns defense will be better than the Seahawks defense. And I think Garrett can get after Kirk Cousins. And I think Cleveland's offense will be able to score on the road against the Vikings. So, I do like the Browns. Next game. Oh, man. My Miami Dolphins host the Indianapolis Colts. You know, I didn't even come on here ranting about the Dolphin loss to the Las Vegas Raiders, and I probably should have, but I'm at the point I just don't care anymore. I, not that I don't care. It's just like I, I can't even get mad anymore. I'm just numb. You know? I mean, the game shouldn't even win in overtime anyway. Miami, the first 14 points Miami scored were basically off of turnovers. Derek Carr had a bad pick six, and the Raiders went for it in their own territory and got stopped. And then Miami scored, I think, less than two minutes later. So my, that game shouldn't even win in overtime. The Raiders should have won that game by double digits easily. But Miami at home... Hulse and the Colts, I'll take Miami. I mean, the Colts offense hasn't looked that good like we all thought it could be better, you know, with Wentz getting there. And Miami's defense should be good against Indianapolis, but maybe Jonathan Taylor's just going to have a free day. But I will take Miami at home. I don't know why, but I am. Next up, the 3-0. Yes, 3-0. Carolina Panthers. On the road to Arlington, Texas, they will play the Dallas Cowboys. I am going to take the boys in this one, and this will be my over-under pick. The over-under, when I looked, it was at 50 and a half. I love the over, personally. I know that McCaffrey will, I don't think he will be playing because of the hamstring injury, but you know what? The Cowboys offense put up points Monday night against the Eagles, and... The Panthers, I definitely think, can put up some points against the Cowboys' defense. I definitely think Sam Darnold has a better chance of putting up better numbers against the Cowboy defense than Jalen Hurts because Jalen Hurts did seem to struggle. So I am going to take the over in that 50-and-a-half, and I like Dallas for the game too. Next up, we got the New York football Giants 0-3 on the road to play the New Orleans Saints. It can't get any better for the Giants as Blake Martinez has a torn ACL and will be out for the remainder of the 2021 NFL season. It's a shame. One of the best guys, one of the faces of the Giants, and he's done for the year. And the Giants got to go on the road to one of the toughest places to play in New Orleans. They play the Saints. The Saints came up with a huge road win against the New England Patriots, something that I did not expect. I took New England in my picks, but the Saints defense played lights out against Mac Jones. I definitely think that was Mac Jones's welcome to the NFL moment, but I like the Saints to rebound. Next up, in Philadelphia at Lincoln Financial Field, the Eagles host Kansas City. I don't understand how the Chiefs are 1-2. and two. I mean, if you want to give them that game against Baltimore with the fumble, you know, you could do that. But to lose that game the way they did against the Chargers, I don't know how. I mean, for, for some reason, the, the offense isn't clicking like 
we thought it would be against the Chargers. And give the Chargers credit, man. They played good. You know, the Chargers offense was able to put up points on the board. And, man, no one, no one thought Kansas City would be 1-2 at one point. I know it's only three games into the year and, oh, you got 14 more games, this and that. But, like, it, still, 1-2 start. And it doesn't help when the Raiders are 3-0, the Broncos are 3-0, and the Chargers are 2-1. You know, you're in last place and you got these teams that are winning now, which could help them later on, maybe possible get into the playoffs or maybe even sneak out the division at this point. But I think Kansas City will rebound against Philadelphia. So I like the Chiefs. Next game, this will be my lock. The 0-3 Texans go up to Orchard Park, New York to play the Buffalo Bills. This is my lock. I'm taking the Bills. I, I, uh, I think this is the most predictable game out of any for week three the NFL season or not for the whole year but just for week three in general this is the most predictable game to see you know Houston go all the way up there and with a back with a third string quarterback I just don't see any possibility of Houston squeezing out a win I I I just don't next up 3 p.m games we got some good ones first up a battle of two three and oh teams in the NFC West division, we got the Arizona Cardinals, who had a road win last week against the Jacksonville Jaguars. They now go from the East Coast to the West Coast. They will play the Los Angeles Rams, also 3-0. Man, who would have thought both teams would be 3-0? Well, maybe the Rams, but not many people thought the Cardinals would. But I'm going to take the Rams at home. The Rams' offense is flying with Matthew Stafford and I definitely think it's going to continue against the Cardinal defense I like the Rams this week another NFC West division matchup we got the Seattle Seahawks going to Santa Clara California they will take on the San Francisco 49ers Aaron Rodgers ripped San Francisco fans his heart out last week but I think the 49ers will rebound and recover to go to 3-1 at home. I like San Francisco. Next up, the 3-0 Denver Broncos. Yes, 3-0. But in fairness, look who they played. The Giants, the Jaguars, and the Jets. They host the 2-1 Baltimore Ravens. I am going with the Ravens. For some, I understand how Teddy Bridgewater is playing absolutely lights out for the Denver Broncos. I give him credit. But for some reason, I'm just not buying into it based on who they play. I think this is the Broncos' first big test of the regular season. And if they come out with a win, then I definitely think we could be talking about the Broncos. But I do like the purple and black spoiling the Denver crowd. And last for the 3 o'clock games. We got the 1-2 Pittsburgh Steelers at Lambeau Field to take on the Green Bay Packers. I am taking the Packers. For some reason, it seems the Steelers are just falling apart with Ben Roethlisberger at quarterback. It, it really might be time. I don't know what Pittsburgh's option will be if they want to start Haskins or maybe they just want to go into the draft and draft a quarterback. But based really for... The three games that I've seen, more importantly, the past two weeks, 
I think Roethlisberger's time in Pittsburgh is just about done. You know, this is a guy that's won two Super Bowls in his career, and the Steeler fans will forever love him. But at some point with this year, it might be time to hang up the cleats. I like Green Bay at home. I definitely think Green Bay can put up some points on the Steeler defense. You know, I think it was Jamar Chase or Joe Mixon that said the Steelers defense basically quit in their week three game. Something you never want to hear. Next up, Sunday night, a game that everybody in the NFL that looked forward to. When Tom Brady left the New England Patriots to sign with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tom Brady makes his return to Foxborough to play the New England Patriots. This has to be the most expensive regular season game all time to get a ticket to see. It has to be. I really can't think off the top of my head what NFL regular season game drew more hype in a return. Maybe the only other one or the only other two was when Joe Montana was in Kansas City when the 49ers came into Arrowhead and he beat the 49ers or when Brett Favre returned to Lambeau Field for the first time in 2009 when Favre was playing for the Vikings. So... There will be a lot of 12 jerseys in the stands. I don't know how many Tampa Bay fans will see. So with that being said, I do think that the Buccaneers will spoil the Foxborough crowd. I definitely think it will happen. Tom Brady is not long away from breaking the passing record and how ironic it probably will happen and it I would say 95% sure would happen because I think he's less than 100 yards away from breaking the record. He will do it in front of Bill Belichick, in front of his former Patriot teammates, and in front of the Patriot fans. I like the Bucks on Sunday night. And for Monday night football, the 3-0 Las Vegas Raiders go on the road to L.A. They will play the Chargers. I actually... I'm going to pick the Chargers at home. I think with the big win they had against Kansas City last week, I think the Charger fans are going to start to believe more and Herbert can become more confident. So I like the Chargers. And that is my week four NFL picks. Once again, my upset of the week is the Detroit Lions beating the Bears. My cover, minus seven and a half for the Titans against the Jets. My over-under pick, the over In the Cowboys-Panthers game, it's at 50.5. And And my lock of the week, the Buffalo Bills against the Houston Texans. Something that happened over the weekend, the Seattle Kraken played their first game. I know it was a preseason game, but they ended up winning 5-3 against the Vancouver Canucks. And new team in the NHL, expansion team. People have asked me, do you think Seattle will work out good for hockey? I honestly think it will. I I really do. You know, the Seahawks really are the only team year by year that would bring hope for the fans. You know, since 2001, which was the Seattle Mariners drought for the last time they made the playoffs, there hasn't been much success with the other Seattle teams. The Supersonics left, the Mariners haven't made the playoffs. But during that time, since 2001, the Seahawks have been to three Super Bowls. They won one, and now they're going to get hockey. You know, not many people thought hockey in Las Vegas would work, but the Vegas Golden Knights would, they were winning games and they were definitely drawing 
fans. People want to come to Vegas for the first time. So, you know, they would get some visiting fans there. But I definitely think hockey will work in Seattle. You know, Seattle has waited 13 years to get a team back because the Supersonics left in 2008. Now, the production on the ice may not be good first year. Let's be honest. The roster is not the best ever for an expansion team. You know, they're going to start young. They're going to keep their young core with the draft picks. So I definitely think in the future it will work out for Seattle. It may not work out in the first year as far as production on ice, but as far as fan reception, I think it's going to work out. Seattle has waited long enough for a team. They're, you know, Seattle fans are always going to be rooting on for their Seahawks. The Mariners are in a playoff push right now. And with hockey coming in, I think it gives the city more excitement. And I do think it will work out. I, d- I really do. And I will admit, I love the Kraken jerseys. I love the logo. I love the colors. Everything so far, everything that Seattle has done so far with getting a hockey team, it's worked out. Sooner or later, I may have to buy myself a Kraken jersey or a Kraken hat and represent it. This was voted on on my Instagram story. I am going to give, in my opinion, the top 10 worst teams in NFL history. You know, there are so many bad teams in NFL history. So what had to go in to making this list? Ah, uh, there was a lot of things. Maybe it was maybe it was just more than just their record cuz I do have a couple of winless teams in this list, but bad coaching, was it a period of not going to the playoffs? Was it terrible head coaching, you know, management, bad players? There's so many things that went into this. You know, I don't like to be negative, but I will say, who's ever on this list, just know one thing. They lost quite a lot. So let's get right into it. The number 10 worst team in NFL history, the 1960 Dallas Cowboys. They were made as an expansion franchise with the AFL and the NFL war. You know, Lamar Hunt put the Dallas Texans into the AFL, so the NFL countered that back with the Cowboys in 1960, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think that was the... Nah, that was the case. Yeah, it was. The AFL and NFL war that was going on. And the Cowboys were basically left with the guys that nobody wanted in the draft and in college. So that year, they scored the fewest points in the league. That was the first year with Tom Landry. The highlight of the year was a 31-31 tie against the Giants at Yankee Stadium, which turned out to be Tom Landry's old team. He knew that team better than the Giants did. I think Sam Huff, who was a linebacker on the Giants, admitted that. So that's the number 10 worst team of all time, in my opinion. The number nine worst team of all time, the 1990 New England Patriots. A 1-15 record, clueless ownership, with Victor Kayam, Rod Rust, one and done as a head coach. Here's a lopsided stat to the 90 Patriots. They gave up 29 rushing touchdowns and they only scored four. Back at that time for New England, there was very little interest and hope. Five years ago, they were in the Super Bowl in 85, even though they got killed by the Chicago Bears, but they were in the Super Bowl five years ago. Some people don't know that. And at that time, 
they were discussing moving out of New England with the little fans. The franchise was just a disaster, and Victor Kayyem had no idea what he was doing as an owner. He he flat out didn't, and it was a good thing that he sold the team to, obviously, we know who, Kraft. The number eight worst team of all time, Richie Kotite's New York Jets. Before Kotai got there, there was a game in 1994 that started the collapse of the New York Jets. It goes down in history, the Dan Marino fake spike game. The Jets were 6-5. and five. If they win that game against Miami, they had a share of first place. And the Dolphins came back in the fourth quarter. They were down 24-6. to six. And, of course, the famous fake spike play. The Jets would lose out the rest of the year. And they would fire Pete Carroll after only one year. Leon Hess gave his new coach, Richie Kotite, total control. I think I remember it. I'm 80 years old, and I want results now. And Rich Kotite, in my opinion is what will make a winning team out of the New York Jets. I think that's exactly what he said. And clueless head coach, Hugh Douglas remembers going into warm-ups, thinking, how much are we going to lose by today? A controversial decision the Jets made occurred in Kotite's first year at the 1995 draft. They decided to take tight end Kyle Brady over future Hall of Fame defensive tackle Warren Sapp. And, you know... Another bad thing that the Jets did after that 3-13 year in 95, they signed Neil O'Donnell, who just lost the Super Bowl with the Steelers, and now he was the main guy for the Jets, and it didn't work out well. In 96, they, they finished 1-15. Neil O'Donnell turned into a bust, one of the worst free agent signings in NFL history. Richie Kotite, in his two years with the Jets, 4-28. The number seven worst team of all time, the 1980 New Orleans Saints. The struggle of the 80 Saints began in 79. They were eight and five, three weeks left to go in the regular season in 79, and the Saints were tied for first place in their division. They were beating the Raiders 35 to 14 in week 15, and they end up losing that game, and they finished the year eight and eight. And they begin the 80s season. They lose, and they lose again, and they lose again. Archie Manning takes a beating every game that he dresses up for. And a highlight came out of that year. The Saints were 0-11, and they were playing a Monday night game at home against the Rams. And that was the game the fans introduced the paper bags over their heads. The only thing that they would do is poke the little eye holes in case something magical happens. You know, they would barely see it. And the Saints lose that game 27-7. And the next day, they fired their head coach, Dick Nolan. And he had to be relieved that he was gone because he couldn't continue. And the Saints didn't win their first game until the 15th game play, they beat the Jets at Old Shea Stadium in Flushing, New York to go 1-14. And they lost their next game against the Patriots to finish 1-15. So the 80 Saints are number 7. The number 6 worst team of all time. The 2020 New York Jets. This was predictable. Before the 2020 season, the Jets hired 
former Miami Dolphin head coach Adam Gase, which shocked everyone. The fact that he got fired in their own division by Miami and <coughs> excuse me, coffin. Christopher Johnson couldn't wait to hire the guy. He, he flat out couldn't. And it was predictable like we all thought. Before he even coaches a preseason game, he has the power to go to Mike McCagnan or at that time Christopher Johnson to get Mike McCagnan fired before a preseason game. What NFL ownership does that? <clears throat> Not many. So the Jets in 2019, they were 1-7 and seven at one point, and they finished 7-9. Okay, we can go. Let's throw a parade for that. You know, they were, at a, they were beating teams that weren't even in the playoffs. So in 2020, they start, you know, struggling to pay Jamal Adams. Simple as that. <clears throat> and they trade him to the Seahawks, and it was predictable. They finished 2-14, and 14, but... It was just non-competitive. You know, the, the highlight of that year for the 2020 Jets to me was the 49ers converting a third and 31. I don't even think you can get that in Madden. Is it possible to convert a third and 31 in Madden on all Madden difficulty? And the Jet fans at that point were just going to embrace the fact, you know, we're going to lose all the games and we're going to draft Trevor Lawrence. Well, at that point, they decide to win a meaningless game against the Rams, which does not save their season. And they beat the Browns the following week and they dropped to number two. And it, the thing with this is it was just so predictable with Adam Gase. Everybody knew he was going to fail in New York. I remember watching his postgame press conference when the Dolphins shut him out in week six, 24 nothing. If you looked into his eyes, he looked dead. A broken down man. Brian Costello in the media is hammering him with questions. Oh, could you do this better? Could you do this? And for once, Adam Gase, or just as a coach in general, just wants to scream to the media, I got nothing. The 2020 Jets, definitely memorable in bad ways at number six. The number five worst team of all time, the Bengals of the 1990s. <clears throat> in the 80s, the Bengals went to two Super Bowls. That's plenty to celebrate. But in the 90s, the franchise just fell way off course. From 1991 to 2005, they did not post a winning season. So in, in fairness, this is probably referred to as the lost decade in Cincinnati. It literally was like a dark cloud was just over the franchise. They couldn't find them their way out of it. I think it was Myron Cope, the radio announcer for the Steelers, that referred to the Bengals as the Bungles. The worst decision they made probably at that time, well, maybe there was one more, was finding a new head coach in 1992. It came down to Bill Cower or Dave Shula. And they go with Dave Shula instead of a Hall of Fame head coach. You know, Dave Shula was the son of Don Shula. You know, so you got that spirit right there. He had a 19-52 and 52 record as a head coach. Man, that, that 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 that's pretty bad. And then you include some of the bad draft picks they had in the 1990s to David Klingler, Kajana Carter, Achilles Smith. They were afraid to make a move. And when it came time to pick in 99, the Saints offered all their draft picks to the Bengals. But they said, nope, Achilles Smith's our guy. We're going to take him. And what a mistake that was. The number four worst team of all time, the 1972-73 Oilers. This starts with Bill Peterson, who was 
terrible as a head coach, a legend at Florida State University coaching the Seminoles, but he could not coach in the NFL. He had a million-dollar contract, first time anyone ever heard of a million-dollar contract as a head coach. And in the two years during that time for the Oilers, they only won two games. And Dan Pastorini remembers thinking that maybe he should have signed a high school baseball contract with the Mets. The highlight of the Oilers at that time, it was a primetime game. The Astrodome in Houston was almost empty, and this one fan was sleeping, and he woke up and saw the red light was on him, and he gave the camera the middle finger, and that turned into the highlight of that Oiler team. Bill Peterson was fired early into the 73 season. Good riddance for that. The number three worst team of all time, the 2008 Detroit Lions. I know some of you have to be shocked by this, that an 0-16 team is number three on this list and not number two or number one. Man, that 08 Lion team was pretty bad. They start the year going on the road against a rookie quarterback with Matt Ryan, a, a team that's supposed to be bad. And just like that, Matt Ryan throws his first touchdown pass, quick, fast, in a hurry. Then earlier, then early in the year, I think it was maybe a week or two later, they go to San Francisco against Mike Martz, the coordinator they fired, and against J.T. Sullivan, the quarterback they cut, and those two carved them up. But the highlight of the 08 Lions has to be Dan Orlovsky running out of the back of the end zone. And they still had to put them on a national televised game on Thanksgiving Day, and the Titans just carved them. And for them to go 0-16, that was the first time ever a team went 0-16 in a regular season, and one man was most to blame for that. Matt Millen, former linebacker and broadcaster, was the team's president for seven years. And in the time he was there, I think he, back in 2001, they couldn't even win 30 games. Bad drafting, bad decisions, just bad everything. If you want to put the blame on one guy the most for the winless season, has to be Matt Millen. The number two worst team of all time, Hugh Jackson's Cleveland Browns. Hugh Jackson was hired as head coach of the Browns back in 2016 after the Browns fired Mike Pettin in his two and a half years because he didn't make it out for the whole third year. The Browns were 3, 36, and 1. 1 in 15 in 2016, the only win came on Christmas Eve in week 16 against the Chargers. The Chargers missed a game-tying kick. In 2017, they go winless. And in 2018, they win two games with Jackson before finally deciding we've had enough. 3-36-1. That is a record that is not great embarrassed to be of if I'm Hugh Jackson and the number one worst team of all time the expansion Buccaneers the talent was obviously not that great they had to find guys that were driving trucks working at the gas stations being a teacher and I definitely think the head coach at the time 
for Tampa Bay, John McKay, regret going to Tampa Bay. He could have been winning at USC, taking the Trojans to bowl games and winning national championships with them. They, the Buccaneers in their first regular season game against the Oilers in the Astrodome, they got lost in the stadium. And here's a stat that I read. The offense in 1976 was so bad, they had more players on injured reserve than offensive touchdowns. I think it was 17 guys on IR and 15 or 14 guys on injured reserve. I mean, we're talking about five, six first downs for the entire game. If they scored a touchdown, it's okay. We have a reason to throw a parade for God's sakes. After one game, a reporter asked John McKay, what do you think about your offense's execution? I'm all for it. Oh, man. And then they'll get hated because of their jerseys, the creamsicle jerseys, which are hated, are loved. I personally love the creamsicle jerseys. You know, I think it was Bill Berger, Bob Berger, a former player for the Philadelphia Eagles, said that they looked like pumpkins on the field. And I will still put them at number one for this simple fact. When you lose 26 straight games to start your franchise or just 26 games in general, you accomplish something. Maybe there's a chance this year that the Jaguars could break that record they're not far from it. I think they're I think they're at 18 or 19 games. It can be broken actually, believe it or not. So, to recap, to go over the list again, worst teams in NFL history in my opinion. Number 10, the 1960 Cowboys. Number 9, the 1990 Patriots. Number 8, Richie Kotite's New York Jets. Number 7, the 1980 Saints. Number 6, the 2020 Jets. Number five, the 1990s Bengals. Number four, the 72-73 Oilers. Number three, the 2008 Lions. Number number three, the 2008 Lions. I may have said two by accident. Number two, Hugh Jackson's Cleveland Browns. And number one, the Expansion Buccaneers. And that is a wrap for episode four of the Jake's Takes podcast at Oklahoma State University. You can catch me at Boom Pickin' Stadium on Saturday for Oklahoma State and Baylor. Jake Ferraro at OSU signing off.